Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Dr. Marta Arminia. Hi Marta, how's it going? Hi Kieran, welcome, thank you, how are you? Yeah, good, good to see you, it's been a while. So Marta taught me in uni at the University of South Wales in the first year and second year, so it's good to catch up after quite a while. Um, how, how has lockdown been for you? Oh, well, lockdown generally was, was quite alright for me, I suppose. Uh, it was difficult in the sense that uh, there, was a, there was a lot of, lot of work and a lot of adjusting to online uh, life and online delivery uh, modes. And I'm a mother as well, so yeah. I was kind of doing double shifts, uh, double shifts and triple shifts in a way but it, it was lovely in, in other ways because I, I really enjoyed supporting our students, yeah. I enjoyed learning with my daughter as well uh, at home, it was a, a different way of, mm. of spending time together. I'm also quite an introvert I suppose so not seeing lots of, lots of people you know, wasn't necessarily an issue with me because I could engage with them online in any case and so forth so lockdown wasn't wasn't altogether a bad experience uh, i was working on my welsh i was uh, watching digital theater yes and so on and so forth so it was quite fine actually how did you find teaching online you know what i i started immediately really because uh, i had an ma group when when lockdown started and with the ma group we we usually meet twice twice a week but i thought you know what i can't even have a single week go by without without actually having yeah. a session with them so i started teaching immediately when they sent us home um, I, I just started doing uh, doing sessions online even before we you know experimented that much with what what is the best delivery method and so on and so forth and I, I thoroughly enjoyed um, yeah. teaching online I still do some of my work uh, online at this moment in time I think in drama there is a lot that you can do online mm. without any any major issues so Obviously, that sort of uh, text-based, dramaturgical, analytical yeah. work, that, that is obviously kind of my, my area, my arena. Yeah. I really enjoy doing that online. And at times, group work works really well online as well, when you can use breakout rooms mm. and so forth. So there are advantages to online learning, yeah. I think. I think Especially so. if we consider things like access, I think yes. there are buttons. I think it's more suited though to people who are in higher education rather than people in secondary school or people in further education because I think some young people have really struggled with, you know, the lack of socialisation. You might notice that with your daughter maybe. Yes, yes. I think that's an important point, Kira. With, with younger learners, um, it is quite difficult and 
having spoken to friends and, uh, and colleagues who have uh, their children in private education, for instance, right. they had lots of classes delivered online, practically all the classes every single day were delivered online. So the, the children got into a good routine and actually coped with online learning quite well. While I think in lots of state schools, it, it was at times kind of a hit, hit yeah. and miss, uh, really. Some, some sessions were delivered online with, with other things. Students were sent a lot of homework mm. and they obviously had to make sense of it with the help of the family or the teacher sent a long powerpoint and then the, you know the, the students had to figure out what to do with a with a long powerpoint and they are quite young for them mm. i think obviously yeah. depending on the age of the of the child and the subject and so on and so forth but yes i think home home learning had its own challenges uh, really and different schools dealt with it in in different ways mm. i think you know that there's potential there there could be there, there could be a lot of development, I think, to improve yeah. online learning. Just thinking of communities that that could be taught, I don't know, from a long distance mm, this way. Yes. You, know, you, you could set up, I don't know, support groups for teens who, 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 would, who would be in different countries. They could yes. get together, do some learning together and so on and so forth. Oh, you know, there's, there's, there's potential there. It just needs... Uh, the appropriate people and initiative Definitely. and maybe some funds, but there, there could be a lot there, I think. Definitely. So, uh, the first question I ask everyone when they come on this podcast is, how did you first get interested in theatre and the arts? Oh, well, that's, that's a fantastic question. I suppose I've been quite lucky that... Um, I, I've been taken to the to the to the theatre a lot when I, when I was young. I was uh, I was taken to the theatre by family, by school. Mm. So I recall seeing lovely puppetry performances in in Transylvania when I was a, a child. And uh, for instance, when I was in secondary school in Hungary, we had uh, season tickets. And we, we went to see almost everything that was that was locally happening at the yeah. at the theatre. They they had a good system. Students could buy season tickets, so you had kind of discounted tickets that way, and it was guaranteed for all the major shows that they were putting on. So you you wouldn't really miss anything um, anything important that's happening in the local uh, in the local theatre. I really thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, so in that sense, I. I, I did become interested fairly fairly early in the theatre. I I didn't know that I, I would have a career connected to it necessarily. I always knew I, I would have a career connected to the arts and humanities right. more broadly. Uh, that was always very, very clear to me. Uh, um, the fact that it became actually a theatre-focused career, that, that became clear considerably later, I yeah. suppose, that's something that my PhD decided somewhat, because I did my PhD in drama, in drama translation, and then obviously I was looking for for work uh, yeah. as, a, as a drama academic, and that's how that happened. And um, as a young person, um, was the theatre something that was generally accessible for people maybe on lower incomes or was it the preserve of like the middle class in Hungary? What does that theatre ecology look like or what did it look like at that time? You know what, I would say it was it was fairly accessible uh, to be fair really for the tickets at the time, I mean, yes, you could you could get highly priced tickets, but generally, I think they they try to make those tickets uh, accessible. And I suppose uh, with with those theatre buildings, you you would have ticket ranges depending on where you where you sit. Yeah. So you know, people would would be able to get a ticket that they can afford. And as I said, I always try to get a season ticket, either mm. with the class together, all of us, or when I was at university, 
um, a group of friends we yeah. would get together and and get season tickets together so i would say it was fairly accessible and at times even going to a different city for for theater yeah. if you kind of say stuff a little bit and you know budget it carefully and so on and so forth it, it was possible to to do that uh, really so it, it wasn't um, necessarily kind of a class class marked privilege uh, i think to to go to go to the theater i i was perhaps lucky uh, that way but then then also i was brought up well as as a child in a in a socialist system in a communist system yeah. later in a in a post socialist system so i suppose the arts uh, are differently funded in those countries yeah. uh, and certainly were very differently funded at, at that time. It, it was quite important for regional theatres to be affordable to the, mm. to the majority of the population and, and, and so they were. But, but also I, I think I was quite, quite lucky that I had some good teachers who, who also cherished even making theatre yeah. in, in school, so we, we put on various performances, plays, um, I, I seem to remember Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet and uh, we devised a dance performance uh, in secondary school at some point about the creation myth and um, elements, the four key yeah. elements from, uh, from Greek philosophy. I remember dancing the fire elements uh, in that yeah. one. So there, there was plenty of that in my in my youth, I suppose, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Right, let me get this right. So you are a Transylvanian Hungarian who grew up in Romania, is that correct? That is all correct. Yes. That is all correct. So I, I can explain how that um, how that is possible. So I am I am a Hungarian. That is that is something very 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 clear. It's always been very clear to me. But I was born in Romania uh, and brought up in Romania up to the age of uh, twelve, nearly thirteen, when my when my parents decided to uh, to leave for Hungary, and then yes. after that we lived in kind of Hungary, the mother country, so to speak. So Romania at that time, when I was born in the late nineteen seventies, I would say had about 2.5 or 3 million ethnic Hungarians right. uh, living in an ethnic minority community and that is due to kind of very convoluted mainland Europe uh, history really where often different ethnic communities live partly side by side okay. but partly also kind of mingling really and Transylvania belonged to different countries at different yeah. times. Uh, Transylvania itself is a multi, multilingual land, really. Uh, for a long time, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, yes. which some people call the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I don't really like that. Okay. It wasn't that much of an empire, not like the British Empire, really. So I, I prefer to call it the Austro-Hungarian monarchy and the Hungarian side yes. of that, the Hungarian kingdom. And Hungary, because it was on the, well, the Austro-Hungarian monarchy was on the losing side uh, in the First, First World, World War, War, as we yeah. know. At the end of the First World War, uh, in the peace treaties, uh, Hungary lost an enormous amount of its territories and populations. Yeah. So those territories uh, that Hungary lost kind of as a punitive measure, uh, really, they went to different countries that surround Hungary, including Romania. So Transylvania went to Romania. Right. Obviously, Transylvania itself was multilingual already yeah. at that time, and it is multilingual now. But there were lots of Hungarians there, lots of Hungarian uh, speakers uh, there, as well as obviously other uh, other ethnicities, other languages spoken. So. Basically, that just kind of got confirmed at the end of the Second World War. There was yes. sort of a very short interim period where some of Transylvania went back to Hungary in between times uh, during the Second World War. But essentially, essentially, Transylvania has been part of Romania since then. However, however, okay. that, that is not to say that those Hungarians have lost their language. 
or yes. have lost their uh, identity. They they are still Hungarians. It's just they they live in Romania. So how did it feel to be an ethnic minority? Did you feel like an ethnic minority? Yeah, very much so, very much so. It, it did feel like being an ethnic minority because, uh, well, even though in the community where I grew up, uh, the town and, and the villages where family lived were predominantly Hungarian-speaking, you would still sense that all the uh, official powers are, you know, um, speaking the dominant language of the country or in school you are expected to study the official language of the of the country if you switch on the television it's in a different language yeah. uh, and so on and so forth so you very much felt like you you were an ethnic minority and you also have to be careful because there was a dictatorship going on yes. Nikolai Ceausescu's dictatorship which was not kind towards ethnic minorities at all so you always have to be careful what to say, mm. what you can say and do in front of other people so that your parents don't get pulled in by the secret services and, you know, sent to a labor camp or something. So in that sense, I suppose I was always quite mm. a precocious child. Uh, really, I, I always yeah. have to have a white head on. And it's interesting you say that about censorship. You know, did that have an impact? on the arts and kind of your involvement in the arts as a young person like was there censorship around theatre and what people could and couldn't say in the theatre for example absolutely absolutely i think it did it did certainly have an impact in my interest uh, in the arts generally in in theatre literature poetry uh, all of this absolutely and in, in the theatre, in many cases, you could, you could do perhaps a bit more than okay. what you could do in, in the printed text. Yeah. Really, because, you know, if you publish, I don't know, a volume of poetry, it went through such strict censorship that, you know, you, you can't necessarily smuggle in things that, that are perhaps critical of the system because they, they, would, they would just get, uh, get censored unless you speak very metaphorical language, which of course of, um, lots of writers did yeah. at the time. They have to read between the lines. But in theatre, of course there, there was censorship in theatre as well, but my, my colleagues and friends who, who were working in Sylvania at, at that time, they have lots of lovely stories about really that at times you would just present a different version <laughs> when Dancer is visiting and, and then you you kind of, you know, Getting around, try, yeah. try yeah. and uh, smuggle things back in and so on and so forth. But this this was this was difficult. This was difficult of course because you at times you know who yeah. the you know who the who the official dancer is who comes to see uh, a dress rehearsal or something like that. But then in addition to that, there are a number of people who are informally reporting. Mm. So it, it's hard, but in many ways, because theatre is, is so malleable, so transitory, yes. you know, a performance one day is different from it is the right. other evening. Yes. Um, you, you could do more in terms of expressing yourself, I think, in, in, in some ways. And... When did you start thinking about having a career? I'm gonna say within the realm of the arts. Because you do work within the arts, but more kind of in the academic sector than the creative sector. Exactly, so, exactly. So that's an interesting one. I suppose I always. Yeah, yeah. I think that was always clear to me that my talents lie in that sort of arts and humanities area and not in the science and math right. area so I was always gearing up towards a career in, in this area as, as a child and young, young person I, I certainly enjoyed putting on shows um, in school or, or with family and friends and playing that I'm, I don't know, a TV presenter and uh, yeah. and whatnot. So it's always been lurking there, that kind of interest. 
really, um, sort of dramaturgical, directorial writing type of interest, not so much the actual performing mm -hmm. uh, interest, although I did a tiny bit of uh, as well. But also, importantly, I've always planned to, to teach. Yeah. Somehow I've always been drawn to that. So somehow these two met, these two interests, really the art interest and the, and the teaching interest, uh, quite luckily. And yeah, I, I've, become, I've become a drama lecturer, a drama academic. But I think it, it, it was quite early that, uh, that I started right. planning for, uh, for that. I always saw myself as a teacher and um, it just took a little while that to clarify what exactly what exactly I will be teaching, really. But as I said, it was the PhD that determined things. So I did my uh, degree, kind of a five-year degree, BAMA together and, and teaching certificate together. That's how I was in Hungary at the time. Yes. I did that in Hungarian and English. So I studied languages and literatures, although drama was, uh, was part of that. And then with the PhD, I did that in drama. In particular, so that kind of put me on a on a on a particular trajectory, on a particular avenue there. And yeah, never looked back. Really, I'm very 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 happy with that. But I also still have my enormous love for languages. Yeah, that's very much there, and for literatures, you know. But all these things are very much interconnected in an yeah. art career, aren't they? So. Oh, definitely. And you go between roles, I guess, and you wear different hats. As creative throughout your career, I wonder if you could talk a bit more about your time at university. What was that? What was that experience like? Um, in Hungary, at the University of Debrecen, if I'm right. Yes, yes. So I I went to the University of Debrecen, which is in the eastern part of uh, of Hungary. It's an excellent university. Uh, it's very good, I would say, both in terms of research and and teaching and just kind of you know getting getting students ready for for employment. It's very good on that front um, as well. I love that city. I went to secondary school in that city as well, so it was quite clear for me that even though there are some other excellent universities in in Hungary, I would apply to to study there. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I would say university life at that time, and I'm talking about the time period between 95 and 2000. Yes. Uh, that's when I was at university. Uh, university life was quite different. So, for instance, we were constantly in class. We, 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 were, we were always on campus in some session or another, whether a, a lecture or seminar or something more interactive, really. Yeah. But we were constantly in class for about 36 to 40 hours a week. Wow. That's and in addition to that, we still had to do our essays and our presentations and our reading. Obviously, I was studying languages and literature, so my reading list was always like yeah. enormous, yeah. really. Dozens and dozens of, um, of books per term. So I don't know how we managed, really. Uh, I, I would like to say lots of coffee, but I wasn't a coffee drinker then, really. So yeah, somehow we managed, somehow we managed, but it was really, really intense, utterly intense, but it was also great, really. Reading, reading mm. all the classics, reading and discussing all the classics, uh, learning a lot of theory. Hungary is quite strong on theory, so right. we did a lot of that. Uh, we kind of, you know, learned a lot about about art history and drama history and literary history, even language history. So mm. I had to study the history of English. Wow. I had to study the history of Hungarian as a language, how the language yes. evolved, uh, how they have interacted with other languages and, you know, how mm. the languages borrowed words from other languages and so forth. I mean, th these are yeah. fantastic things and, and fascinating things, really. And then the final year, I was doing my teaching uh, practice to yes. get my, my teaching certificate. So then, obviously, having had lots of theoretical training and methodological training, we were kind of thrown into a secondary school <laughs> and wow. then had to do lots of classes. 
to decide to move to the UK so essentially I went on an exchange to start with so when I was in my final year at university in the in the fifth year I did all my teaching practice in the first uh, semester and I went on an exchange in the final semester I went to the University of Hull to do an Erasmus exchange Uh, and um, I, I absolutely loved it. You know, at times you are on a place, I'm sure you know that feeling here, and you arrive in a place, yes. and you just you just feel at home. Oh, definitely, really. yes. And it was just one of those things, really. So then I think within a couple of weeks, I knew that I wanted to apply to do my PhD there. It's not something yes. that was decided before. It's just the way I have responded to the place. Wow. Really, and um, I, I kind of appreciated that. I suppose that that sort of intellectual freedom, that yeah. uh, being away from your from your home homeland, also means that you know you 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 just you just throw yourself into a completely different system. You don't really belong to any group, any yeah. lobby group, any support group, any network. You're completely new. You're you're just kind of left to your left to your resources, and uh, yeah, you you just get on with it. So then I applied uh, for a PhD place. I got a scholarship, and uh, then another another <laughs> five years of study started. Uh, it took me about five years to do the PhD. What was your PhD in? Okay, so my PhD was in the drama department in Hull, right. um, in in, uh, in East Yorkshire, and that was on the Hungarian translations of Hamlet. Right. So I started writing on the Hungarian translations of Hamlet, and then that's kind of an interesting phenomenon. For lots of people, the PhD becomes kind of much more specific as you go along. In my case, the PhD kind of opened up somewhat and became that's a bit broader. And then I ended up writing uh, about Hungarian translations, um, not only in the specific strict sense, i.e. from English into Hungarian, yeah. but translation also as rewriting, as adaptation, so translation more like in a metaphorical sense. So yeah. I ended up also writing about contemporary plays that write Hamlet. Uh, contemporary and and not so contemporary poetry that uses motifs and quotations yes. from Hamlet. So it ended up as something more like you know Hamlet in Hungarian culture, but specifically focusing on um, translations and rewrites and intertextuality, essentially. Can you give an example of how Hamlet has been kind of? I don't I don't want to say made relevant to Hungarians, but can you give an example of how it's been recontextualized? Like one example. Yes, certainly. So there there are many many um, examples of um, of Hamlet being recontextualized. So. This this is something very interesting. I, I would love to write a monograph, for instance, about uh, the Hungarian plays that yeah. uh, that rewrites Hamlet. So, for instance, there's one about actually I think more more than one, but I'm thinking of one in particular about Horatio, and then yeah. the whole play is is centering on on Horatio as somebody who has been given the mandate to to tell the story again. And to to keep the story alive, and how important that is to be a witness to the times, yeah. and you know, be be able to pass on to the next generation what has happened, and help them make sense of it, uh, and so on and so forth. So you know, this 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 is one example, really. That's But there, there are there are there are others. There, there are actually several Hungarian plays that um, that rewrite. Uh, Hamlet in in some way or another, and also there are novels. Uh, there is a novel, for instance, uh, set in the late um, 
1920s, around the time of the global financial crisis, and then looked at the at the global financial crisis through the lens of Hamlet. Yeah. A very interesting one. There's another one which is called Professor Hamlet, Hamlet uh, Tanarur, which uh, is uh, again looking at that sort of um, introverted, pondering, yeah. um, lonely kind of eye tower individual as Hamlet, and uh, looking at the main character in that novel through them. Yes. So there's lots there, really, really exciting stuff, including some poetry from Transylvania during Ceausescu's dictatorship, wow. which uses Hamlet, yeah. uses Yorick. Yes. Of course, the fool who, who finds a way to say the truth and so forth. So there's, there's a lot there. And uh, I'm going to move on slightly. Um, what do you think? is the relationship between academia and the arts and do you feel that artists undervalue the academic side of the arts sometimes? That's a good question. You know what, I think in our age it is very important for for the art sector and academia to, to collaborate. I think we, we live at a time when very often we encounter the challenge that we need to justify the value of the of the art. Yeah. Which I think should be should be rather obvious. We we both work in this area and we, we fully appreciate the the value of the arts really. But but there, there are times when we are kind of pushed uh, to 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 justify. Uh, what yeah. we what we bring to society, and I think art education, art academia, and the actual art sector should should join forces. I think um, in this current climate as much as possible, yeah. and um, and and make sure that it is quite visible. You know what we what we bring to the table. That it's it's not just STEM, although I have massive respect for uh, for STEM STEM subjects. Yeah. I mean, look at how they are helping us with COVID and everything. Uh, massive respect for them, but it's it's only them uh, really that, that improve the quality quality of life. Really, so I think that there's got to be more, but at times it is it is difficult. I think. Obviously, the education sector and art sector have their own ways of working, have their own agendas, uh, have their own priorities, and so on and so forth. But I think there are more and more um, projects when the when when there is genuine collaboration. So, for instance, I mean, this is Responsibility on both the arts organizations 
and the education institutions, I think, to value that outreach. Because the people who are in education at the moment are the artists of the future, and unless they see a way in for themselves, they won't have a career in the art, you know, and those connections definitely need to be strengthened, I think. I couldn't agree more, absolutely, um, absolutely. I'm here in this evening actually, first meeting of the German Writers Group this evening, so I'll be going to the German later this evening, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, as, we, as we were just kind of saying, arts education at all levels seems to be constantly undervalued and underfunded by the UK government. What do you think can be done to improve the provisions for arts education in Wales? Great question once again, really. I suppose we, we certainly are, are trying. I think those of us who, who are engaged in, in art education, we are constantly trying to, to improve the, the art education in Wales. I think partly uh, through those connections, through those yeah. connections with the art centre, the, the art centre, the theatre uh, sector, media sector, whatever is, um, is relevant to a particular uh, student group or course, making sure as well that the student understands, uh, you know, what the, what the sector is like, uh, not, not just how competitive the, the sector is, which which is something we we all know in in principle yeah. but but also actually getting to know the sector in in good depth so yeah. i making sure that that students access you know productions and and go and watch things listen to things and read things and yeah. uh, gather the courage to reach out as well so for instance uh, I am leading a professional practice and employability module mm. in the third year uh, at the at the university at the moment, and that's for for two particular courses: theatre and drama and fundamental media students. And that that is a compulsory module at the moment. Uh, it wasn't always the case, but now it is a compulsory module, and I think that is a really good thing. Would that be so a Would that be it, a module? It's a module that, that helps the students understand the sector yes. and its expectations better. Uh, really, to, they they do a work placement, right? And uh, obviously, they reflect on that work experience uh, and so forth. So I think it, it is important to make arts education sort of more um, employability-driven, yes. really. But at the same time, especially as someone who's coming from a, from a country that, that focuses on that so traditional encyclopedic sense of, uh, of knowledge, I, I also think that a solid subject knowledge is really, really important, isn't mm. it? And I think that is something that we, we kind of had at the heart of the, of the script writing provision as well. I, I, studying with us. I think that so. The solid subject knowledge is quite crucial, isn't it? Don't you agree? I think so, because there was a good balance between creative modules and theoretical modules which really made ourselves students understand things like the history of drama, you know, the canon, the work that was already out there, um, notable writers, practitioners whose work we could read or go and see, and also crucially a knowledge of the sector in Wales. So while it was never going to be a course which offered direct automatic employability after graduation for me at least it gave me a knowledge of the industry in Wales to put me in a position where after graduation I knew who to go to I knew where I could send my work and I was already making those connections while I was at university so we had those professional practice sessions where we would have 
visiting practitioners from the industry in Wales. Um, and that was really valuable because making connections with them really helped me after I graduated to just get that foot in the door in the industry, which is all you need, I think, at the very beginning. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think that is very, very important uh, so that uh, our students feel that they are gradually initiated into that yes. sector as part of their education, that we do have those workshops, we do have those master classes, guest lecturers, uh, and so on and so forth, those sort of briefs which are yes. kind of industry simulated uh, briefs in tasks. Um, I, I think that's crucial. And, and getting to know what's out there, you know, mm. what, what the key organizations are, how you approach them, and so on and so forth, how you get funding, um, yes. all, all these things. I, I think they are very, very important these days, absolutely. As, as well as that sort of solid subject mm. knowledge that we have, we have been talking about. One, not a criticism, but one thing it didn't really help me with was an understanding of how the Arts Council worked or how to apply for funding. And I think that is a short that was a shortfall of the course I did. I didn't really understand the process of applying for Arts Council funding, which is so important. And that I think is something that um arts training university courses should be providing, which I didn't feel I received necessarily? No, I, I take your point on that, absolutely, and that is one reason why this module at the moment is compulsory, the professional practice yes. module, so we can talk about being a freelancer more, yeah. there's room for, for that, uh, really. I agree with you, it's, it's important to cover these things and uh, even if it's not covered fully at least to flag up in, uh, you know, just e even in big brush strokes how something like that works. Uh, yeah, 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 I agree and th that's one reason why we always try to improve <laughs> the provision, absolutely, and, and make it more kind of lifelike life and, uh, and um, employability focused, very much so. Definitely. So I want to talk a bit more about your book, about translations of Hamlet, um, which you've been editing. What have you found interesting during the process of editing these books? And yeah, what has come up particularly that has interested you? Excellent. So. I have been editing this book on, on translations of Hamlet into, into various languages uh, for several years now and uh, it will come out for, before Christmas now, before oh, the end of the year, so I really, really look forward to holding it uh, in my hands. I've been uh, co-editing it with a colleague from, from London, from UCL, uh, Professor Lily Khan. Um, so it's a project that is close to my heart. Uh, yeah. Obviously, as we discussed, I did my PhD on the translations of Hamlet into Hungarian. So this this is almost like a sequel to that, right. but an edited an edited sequel. So having done a, a few years of work on on how Hamlet has been translated into Hungarian, uh, I thought I would do a book on how Hamlet has been translated generally into a number of languages globally. And uh, thankfully, uh, lots of uh, lots of people expressed an interest uh, in writing a chapter. Right. So we we do cover. I'm just trying to think now. At least thirteen or fifteen culturally. So lots of colleagues have written up uh, chapters. Lastly, we have various linguistic aspects covered, uh, how, uh, how the play has been translated and when and why into, yeah. into various languages. Um, there, there are uh, chapters that tackle kind of the, the linguistic challenges, for instance, Yuga and, and uh, various other, other linguistic challenges of the, of the text. 
some look at the performative aspect of the test. Actually, several of the of the chapters look at yeah. the performative aspect of the of the text and dramaturgical uh, the, the relationship between translation and uh, and dramaturgy. Uh, how you even choose a text, uh, yeah. especially when there are different translations available. How do you choose one for your for your production? Yeah. Trustees are for the industry more generally. 
so I have been a, a transcript for uh, taking flight theater and then uh, later for the for the Sherman theater during lockdown uh, right. as, it, as it happened really but it, it's something I had thinking of for a for a while really and I answered uh, their call um, at the time I think uh, especially as a drama academic it's it's a very helpful thing to be a trustee, really. Partly, from my own selfish perspective, it gives me uh, just a, an excellent insight into how into how a theatre works uh, these days and how, yeah. how a theatre is, is run, kind of on a on a, on a management level, kind of from a bird's eye bird's eye uh, perspective, uh, really. And I suppose for the theatres, it, it is important to have a dedicated um, board, of, board of trustees, board of directors, because uh, as, as they are registered as charities, lots of theatres in the UK, they need to have a very proactive board of directors who, who will just kind of, rather than, you know, bossing about and interfering yeah. in little, uh, little matters, they, they more oversee uh, the working of the of the theatre and make sure that these theatres kind of live up to their own mission statements, yeah. uh, their own pronounced visions and principles. And I don't know, for instance, in the case of the Sherman, obviously they really champion new writing. So if suddenly yes. there was no new writing produced at all, the board might say, oh, what's going on well, yeah. <laughs> or, or what's happening or for instance we're taking flight obviously access yeah access and inclusion uh, are, are uh, really kind of crucially at the heart uh, of uh, of taking flight work so again if the board noticed that somehow that just got lost you know, mm. some, somewhere in, in the midst of things, we could just ask, oh, hang on a second, so what are we about at the moment then? So it's, it's, it's a lovely role, uh, obviously it's uh, time-consuming yeah. and, and there are responsibilities and so on and so forth, but what you gain from it is immense, it, yeah. it, is, it is fascinating, it's a brilliant insight, and also it's nice to you know, to, to give something back, Absolutely. so to speak, in, yeah. in, the, in the manner of, of giving, a, giving a particular service uh, to the arts, really, after having enjoyed uh, so much and having received so much over the years. Oh, definitely. So, for me, it's, it's, it's a wonderful highlight uh, of my professional life, being a trustee. And I want to talk now about the um, audio dramas you've um, directed, you've directed three of David Wood's audio plays with students at the University of South Wales. But I'd like you first to talk about, um, I know you feel quite passionately about audio drama. Um, so where did that passion come from and what do you think? makes a good audio drama and why do you think maybe they've been overlooked as a form perhaps? Well, I, I think audio drama is an absolutely fascinating form uh, really and yes it has been largely overlooked but I, I also think um, with Covid uh, it's gaining a, a a bit more attention really and perhaps more, more, more than a bit uh, because uh, I think one, one of the genres that, that has really uh, flourished during, uh, during lockdown is, is of course audio drama, whether radio drama or, or drama podcast or, or whatever yes. form really. But I think audio certainly has had um, a more general revival uh, during uh, COVID, as well as obviously Zoom theatre in inverted yeah. commas, various forms of digital uh, digital theatre. But audio too. Uh, I think in Britain as well, we are really quite privileged that there, there is yeah. excellent radio drama out there, and, and we don't have to do much. We just obviously look at the more more recent you know bbc uh, 
bit radio drama productions, I think there is a fantastic, really, really rich uh, range yeah. of work uh, there. Um, and it is a strength uh, of, uh, of great media production, radio drama. I think we can certainly say that. Uh, as, a, as a Hungarian, again, I'm lucky that um, Hungarian radio drama is, is also is also really really good and occasionally i still listen when i can have a, a little bit of time i still try to catch up on on hungarian radio drama as well um, i used to listen as well to the to the hungarian equivalent of the archer right. uh, kind of res resident hungarian radio talk sadly it no longer, oh. no longer exists but it went for several decades it's it was the Tabo, Tabo Chalad, the Tabo family. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I, I do have fond memories of listening to that with my grandma. But yes, I suppose radio drama has kind of accompanied me um, through, throughout my life, really. I, I've also been really influenced by my colleague, Professor Richard Hans, whom you, right. whom you might uh, remember from the yes, university. Yes, yes. Uh, who is, is uh, no longer at our university, he, he is in Norwich now, but um, he is one of my mentors and he is a, a fantastic uh, radio drama expert, so I have been quite influenced by, by his work, both creative work and academic writing about radio. So I, I always really wanted to do a radio uh, drama festival with the students, Yes. And uh, I have been module leader for a particular second year theatre festival module. I'm not, not teaching it at the moment, but last year I was. And I thought with lockdown and everything, uh, this might be the right moment ready to produce a radio drama festival. Had you, had so, you... Uh, I kind of combined two passions, two interests of mine. Uh, yes. I've always really appreciated children's theatre. Yes. And I thought, why not do an audio drama festival that is actually for children in particular? And uh, David Wood, uh, who is obviously a fantastic, mm. uh, really, really prolific, inspirational uh, children's playwright, among other things. He's, he's done work for adults as well, and he's acted, directed, and so forth. Uh, he has a brilliant batch place and I selected with colleagues, with the help of colleagues, three which which are about the environment, so they, they are all kind of ecological plays which we could all relate to because it wasn't just me work on this, I was kind of artistic directing uh, the yeah. festival but my colleagues who were directing the actual plays were Ian Staples who directed the Selfish Shellfish, lovely title and Win Mace directed Save the Human, and Sarah Moore Williams directed The Seesaw Tree. Three so fantastic. These plays uh, by David uh, were not written for radio, so let's okay. be clear about right. that. So David and his agency very kindly agreed uh, that we do this uh, for an audio uh, audience. So, uh, uh, what, what, so what obviously was just kind of needed to direct this, uh, these plays while they were directing these plays in such a way that they functioned uh, for, a, for a listening uh, audience rather than, uh, rather than uh, spectators in the, in the theatre. Did you have to uh, do... We really benefited from David's advice. He came to see the students. Yeah. Uh, we produced the whole festival online. Uh, which was quite a challenge, but actually we managed to record everything online, edit everything online, do the rehearsals online. Oh, wow. So it was actually quite an eye-opener in terms of what can be achieved yes. in the online working yeah. modality, really. And um, I, I, we, have, we have learned a lot uh, from it. Um, it, it was a really, really uh, exciting, uh, creative process. And, you know, adapting these plays that were stage plays for audio, what, what were the challenges of that? Well, th there were obviously lots of, 
lots of challenges instead of um, being always clear about about character. So a lot of work has to be done on on character. Yeah. They had a voice coach uh, coming in, a very experienced voice coach, John Mills, was working with the students on on finding that very specific character yeah. uh, through their voices, really, because you know you couldn't do the usual things you can visually do on on stage. Everything has to be communicated with uh, with voice and yeah. and sound. Um, okay maybe occasionally with some narration depending on the play really but they they were quite dialogue dialogue oriented uh, pieces so a lot of work was done on character a lot of work was done on kind of the really appropriate sound effects and musical accompaniment so um, there, there were students dedicated to to creating sound effects yeah. for, for all of the productions creating or, or finding um, sound effects that that are uh, that are not copyrighted that are that are free to use so we had again a master class on that from steve johnson my radio show colleague who is fantastic mm. in that uh, in that field in that area so yeah there, there was a lot of work around it really character sound effects um yeah that sort of unity of the of the uh, of the production, that sort of stylistic unity of each production. So the editors actually did a massive amount of work as well uh, in each group. Yeah. There were dedicated editors, student editors. Uh, and had had they done much of that before? Was this a new thing for the students as well? I suppose. In terms of it, it was quite a challenge for the yeah. students. Uh, certainly, some of them did editing before. Uh, some very much put themselves forward for for editing. For others, it was more, more of a kind of a deep water uh, experience. Uh, really, yeah. uh, we also did a lot on the education side. So talking about bringing the art sector and education together, with education provision for the festival was was actually quite important. So yeah. we produced a range of. Um, study uh, materials, uh, study packs, learning yeah. packs for each of the plays and we send them out to schools. Oh, fantastic. So we, we did quite a lot on that as well. Students uh, did that as part of their assessment. So it was quite a holistic role for everybody rather than just voice acting or assistant directing and yeah. so on and so forth. They, they actually had to do quite a bit. That sounds fantastic, and it sounds like the students had a fantastic experience as well. So, so well done in in difficult circumstances. You seem to be able to create something really interesting and really exciting. We've nearly come to the end, Martha. But the last question I'd like to ask you is how I finish all of these. I would like to ask, what advice would you give? to someone who's just starting out in the industry? I love that question and I think it is, it is an important one for, for us as educators to, to think through, uh, really. I, I think I would encourage everybody to, to be brave, to keep, keep working and to be brave to ask people for, for advice, to connect with people, to connect with organizations, not to leave it to the third year or, or after graduation, uh, really, but, but actually start connecting with the field, start connecting with yeah. the sector from as early as possible. Obviously, not everybody goes to university. Some people come to the arts, you know, from, from various, various angles, various uh, directions in life, really. But, it is important to have the courage to reach out. People have, have a lot of support, I think, for, uh, for, for others. And people generally in the arts very much understand that it's not easy to be an early career person. Yeah. And there are schemes, uh, there are scholarships, opportunities. And I think it is important to have courage to try for those opportunities, really. And even if there isn't one advertised, you know, you just send that email and inquire, yeah. are there any opportunities at the moment? These are my interests. 
excellence, you can only create excellent work if you do yourself watch and read and listen to a lot of work. You need to be in you to be inspired constantly. Yeah. So you you have to follow what's going on. You have to keep reading, watching, listening, uh, discussing with others yeah. daily. So knowing the field, knowing the subject yeah. really, really well, you know, and, and these are things that don't necessarily cost money because there, there are so many plays that you can access online or for yeah. free or e even, you know, clips of productions and so on and so forth. Not everything is, is sort of, you know, related to, to people's financial status and so on. So keep soaking up Thank you so much, Martha. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you for your time. Um, that's about it for this episode of In Lockdown With. But on the next episode, I think I'll be talking to Gareth John Bale, who is an actor who appeared recently in Grav, which was originally a play by Owen Thomas, but it was unadapted to a TV film which was recently shown on F4C in Welsh. But for now, it's goodbye for me and bye for Martha. Bye-bye. Thank you so much, Kieran. Love you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me. Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.